Tracy Sisko. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. I'm your host. We're very happy today to have in our first segment, uh, Deborah Witzberg, the Deputy Inspector General for Public Safety. She works out of the Chicago Inspector General's office. She's been on the show a few times before, so regular viewers will know that. She is talking, or we're going to discuss today, a report that her office did on the CPD's response to the Floyd protests. And while a 180-some page report, I believe, um, I really think people that are interested in uh, crime and justice issues in Chicago should read it thoroughly. It's really fascinating because they have a lot of interviews with um, officers on the street and commanders. Um, and it's really interesting to hear their take of what they knew at the time, orders, how the orders were, were not going through the system. It's really fascinating. The decisions were made. Um, the decision-making process in some places is very interesting. But first, I want to talk to you, as I do every week, about CJP Nation. It's our um, advocacy wing of our organization. We right now have around 150 volunteers and interns working with Chicago Justice Project, people from all over the country, all kinds of uh, walks of life. And they're um, helping us pursue justice, uh, transparency, and accountability throughout the country now as we've expanded out of Chicago to include the District of Columbia, the area in Virginia and Maryland around the District of Columbia. And this summer we'll be spreading to a bunch of cities around the country, including our transparency efforts in Louisville, um, Columbus, Ohio, and South Bend, Indiana, to name a few, and then some of the major cities. We meet every Wednesday night. There should be a link in the chat where you're at if you're watching the show. Uh, coming up, and you're going to see they can participate on crowdsource research projects, be a social media ambassador for us. Uh, we're getting into legislative activity that's coming up soon, um, maybe in a couple of weeks, on our uh, police accountability, police settlement and transparency and accountability ordinance. We're hoping to see some movement there soon. Okay, and um, also you can go to our website at chicagojustice.org if you want to sponsor this show and go to the donate and you will get up to the sponsorship page. We'd really um, appreciate it. Um, that would help us greatly as we expand the show to three times a week. Coming up um, and the shows coming up this week is Alderman Martin, 47th Ward, to talk about what's going on with the community commissions. Uh, there's, As everyone knows, there's a gap on CPAC um, acronyms for those two uh, versions of the community council. They're somehow merging and coming together, it seems like now, but now Alder, or Alderman, Mayor, Mayor, Mayor uh, Lori Lightfoot is coming up with her own version that we don't think many people, if anyone, have seen. So that's supposed to be introduced soon. She delayed a vote, I think two Fridays ago, that was supposed to settle the CPAC gap version and pass one. Um, that hasn't happened. We're going to talk to Alderman Martin, uh, and we have invitations out to a few other Aldermen about that. We also have on Friday, that's on Wednesday, on Friday, Mick Dumkey, uh, his story recently in ProPublica about a murder of a black politician in Chicago, black well-known politician in Chicago that seems like it was an assassination and how it remains unsolved today and how the CPD seemed like they never wanted to solve it. And why that is, it's a fas fascinating read. I, um suggest you tune in on Friday to catch that. And on Monday, we have representatives from both the Crime Lab and the Chicago Police Department um, to talk about the Officers to Support System, which other, under other names is called an early warning system, a system that the police department erased. They once had, but had to erase because of the union. It's coming back in a new version created by the Chicago Crime Lab that's supposed to help identify cops that are in need of help before 
bad things happen. So um, that's all coming up. We have, um, I think we're in the process of locking in Alderman Maria Haddon from 49th Ward on the 22nd to talk about an ordinance she recently introduced um, called the Anjanette Young Ordinance that's supposed to regulate search warrants in Chicago. Um, one that was very coldly responded to by our mayor, but we're going to talk all about that on the 22nd. So let's get started. Um, Deborah Witzberg, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you for having me. Okay, so George Floyd, we're here talking about a report that uh, her office just released, and it's a, a basically an analysis, a review of the CPD's actions around the protests that came that started on May 29th in Chicago in response to George Floyd's killing on May 25th. So what can you give, let's get started with the basics. What is the time frame that your report looks at? We looked at, um, as you, as you laid out, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis on a Monday. And we look at the events that took place beginning sort of the end of that week, Thursday to Friday of that week through to about June 7th. Okay, so we're talking eight, nine, ten days, something like that. Okay. Yes. What exactly? What were the boundaries of your research? What were you? What was your research looking into? Um, I think when people hear this, they're going to think at least some segment of the audience here is thinking, "Oh, it's all about police misconduct." But that really isn't the case. You looked in much more than that. So, what? What was the breadth of this? The research. We really wanted to offer a sort of thoroughgoing public narrative to um, to kind of render transparent and publicly visible all of the various pieces of um, the response from the Chicago Police Department, as well as from the city of Chicago, from other city entities to the events of those days. So um, this was not a disciplinary investigation. As you know, this, is, this, this product is not you know, it, in the investigation of any specific allegations of individual misconduct, but rather this is really a um, a sort of systemic look at the, the nature and the architecture of that response by the police department and the city. Okay, and so we are a data project. We are interested in the data. What data did you look at? What does that data mean? Because this is both a quantitative to some degree and a qualitative report. So what data? I think some of the qualitative data really, even though we're a quantitative-based project, I think the qualitative data you got was really the most interesting if, from my perspective, but what data did you use and how did you get access? Sure. So um, this was um, a, the fact finding that underlies this report was sort of a joint effort between the Office of Inspector General and the independent monitor overseeing the implementation of the consent decree that was entered in Illinois versus Chicago. So there's a provision in the consent decree that um, permits the monitor to coordinate and confer with the Office of Inspector General in order to avoid the duplication of efforts. And so while the independent monitor and the Office of Inspector General have different sort of scopes of jurisdiction and sources of authority, um, in, 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 in the interest of avoiding duplication of efforts, exactly as the consent decree notes, um, we engaged in the underlying fact-finding here as sort of a joint enterprise. And so we... Um, we looked, we requested and looked at, um, as you know, a, a pretty wide range of different kinds of information. So that included policy and training documents from the police department, um, deployment records such that they were during the period of time at issue, um, arrest reports, 
uh, tactical response reports, so use of force reports, um, as well as you know commu- internal communications, internal within the department and among city entities, um, as well as as you know sort of um, narrative you know anecdotal data. We interviewed dozens and dozens of of people, both from the police department and from other city departments, as well as members of the public who um, who participated in the events of those days. All right, let's get to some of the, what I think are the juicier, more interesting parts. Um, And even though we're not going to go delve too deep into what those uh, interviews said from those, uh, the interviews of police officers and what was gleaned from there, the report's 180 pages. We'd have to spend six hours to go even halfway into that um, because there's just so much interesting stuff in there, especially for towards the management of the department and management of crises. Um, It's really fascinating. But let's talk about the lead up to the 29th, which I think is that Friday when the first big protest happened. I saw as a... Um, as a police accountability person and someone who's watched intently um, all the news and soaked all the news I possibly could up since Ferguson, since the murder of Michael Brown, and that's not going whether that shooting was good or bad, but since then, I saw what happened in Minneapolis and said, and so I can swear, oh shit, what is coming now to cities across the country, not just Minneapolis. But for some reason, your research shows that despite the Illinois State Police and maybe other agencies worried about what was coming with these protests, the superintendent of the Chicago Police Department and the police department management seemed unmoved that there was going to be any large-scale protests and civil disorder in Chicago. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yes, I think, um, you know, there are a couple sort of bedrock landing places of this report. Um, and and at bottom, it, it really is that, you know, that the, these events were marked by a failure of leadership, a failure of the senior leadership within the police department. And that has a couple of different dimensions, but certainly one of them is a lack of preparedness and a lack of adequate planning. Um, I think there's sort of a short-term piece and a long-term piece of that lack of preparedness and, and failure to plan. The, the longer-term piece is that, you know, you you would want it to be true that a major city police department had sort of a contingency plan in place for large-scale civil unrest. You would you would you would want to imagine that there was sort of a Manila folder in a drawer somewhere that said like, here's what to do in the event of you know of large-scale public demonstrations and unrest. Um, and I think there were real shortcomings there. The, the kind of shorter term dimension of that lack of preparedness is, is exactly in line with what you say, which is that in the days between George Floyd's death in Minneapolis and when events really started to unravel in Chicago, there was a fair amount of information out there, um, both about events that were happening in other cities across the United States and information to suggest that, that events were coming to Chicago. And I think um, you know, given that information, the city and the department could and should have done better to be prepared. I think, you know, the, the one other thing I would note about that is to say that not only was that information available kind of from the outside, there were people within the department who raised um, or who, who recall raising um, concerns very similar to the ones you articulate. You know, one of the one of the sort of frontline department members we talked to said, look, I, I 
it seemed to me that my supervisor, you know, that my command knew less than any person with social media and a smartphone would have known. Yeah, I, I don't see how you go through the disruption of the Laquan McDonald events and you go through prepping and preparing and handling to whatever degree you want to say they handled NATO when it was here and then see what read this report and you're like they were massively it seems from the report they were massively unprepared at almost every level um communication wise equipment wise um and it seems like they started pretty much behind the eight ball from the, the from the start and they were never able to catch up um and I, i'm sorry go ahead no no I, I i think that's right and i think i think the result of that i think what we saw as a product of exactly that situation um you know were circumstances in which the leadership of the department critically failed members of the public um and failed frontline police officers who were who were out in the street and i think you know the failures failures ran in both of those directions yeah, I think that there's got something that is missed out in the police accountability and making police better movement, community, whatever, is that a lot of the failures of the system of the police department structure and management affects frontline officers the most. Um, I have said this, and I don't think people want to hear it really, but the police accountability system let Jason Van Dyke down. You should not get to 20 complaints against you from all over the city throughout your career. And there isn't some kind of formal step in the process to get your get you help to stave off what is most likely an escalating problem is going to end in disaster. I, I think it's certainly true that police officers are entitled to a department that provides them with adequate guidance and support. And they didn't get that here. No, and I had, when the protests, I'm on that Saturday, I had friends of mine, we're all in a group chat, a bunch of guy friends from the old neighborhood just outside of Chicago. And um, they were just starting to, you know, one of them's a police officer and he just started going off. He's like, what did you, he was um, injured at the time, I think. And he was just like, what, what did you want these frontline guys to do? Right? Like the, the management was completely unprepared. And now it's always the, the people on camera um, taking the brunt of it is always the lowest level people. It's always the patrol officer on the street. And that's correct. And I think part of this is not going to be solved until the union understands my 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 view, my words Till the union understands that some of these reforms will actually help the frontline officers. Right. Mandated training. Um, there's all kinds of things that would have helped mandated uh, the frontline officers in this. And I do agree this, the, the structure in the system let them down. Speaking of systems, um, we'll get to the, they're going to do a couple of political things here because I have to, you can't let these juicy bites go. Um, I think on Saturday morning, which would be May 30th, a member who you guys, who your department there does not identify the senior member of the mayor's office, although I would buy you a lot of dinners to find out who that was, emailed the superintendent on that Saturday morning and, think, and said, thank you for all that incredible work last night. You made Chicago proud. Now, 
How does someone see? Now, I'm not trying to say that there weren't good officers on the street doing whatever they can, but who could see that as a a system uh, 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 a system functioning well and doing everything it could? How could they see that on Saturday? Were they just not looking at it, or was it so soon that they couldn't understand what was actually happening? Because it seems from the report, it was pretty much a systemic failure on every level on Friday. Um, you know, I, um, I I don't know what motivated that particular communication. I mean, I, you noted that it was not sort of the only the only communication like that. I mean, we talked to people yes. who reported going going home after many many hours out on the street on kind of that Friday night, like overnight into Saturday morning, and going home and saying like, well, we you know we an unfortunate choice of words, but we dodged a bullet. You know, this was, we, this could have been worse. And I, I, I don't know what the explanation for that perspective is. Um, it, it, um, if, you know, it, it is because we found it notable that we included it in the report. Yeah, I can say it. <laughs> um, the other comment you're talking about, there's another political one, which is the superintendent responded to that email. Officers made the city of Chicago and, and the police profession proud. Uh, hindsight, he may, I don't know if he gets that that was really off. I mean, I don't think he understood what kind of um, huge failure there was of the system and how they abandoned a lot of those officers on the street um, without being adequately prepared to deal with what they had to deal with. I, I think that's probably right. So I think one of the, sorry, which is one of the no like impacts of failures in communication and coordination, I think, you know, there were not clear lines of communication between senior leadership and the frontline members. And that, that of course, impacted kind of planning and direction and strategy. But I think it also likely impacted the flow of information back up to senior leadership about how things were really going. <laughs> um, it's interesting to me, you know, um, with the, the vaccinations that are going on, a lot of the sites are being manned by National Guard. And I've had some family vaccinators talk to others and how easy... I don't know what they were expecting, but they've all talked about a very easy process, not getting the signing up. But once you got there, like my father yeah. made it to McCormick place and he said it was a breeze when he got there. And he said, what did you expect? The military, the National Guard's running it. Logistics, they're going to be able to do that. That's exactly he was in the military for a little bit when uh, way before I was born. But um, so he just expected that. I don't understand why that. That is not what I would expect from the police department. But I got to tell you, I I did not expect, I expected, especially after NATO, that this report would be far less, less harsh on the administration and the systems in place than this one is. I was kind of amazed at how bad the management of all of this was. Um, you know, I, I think it, it is, it's important to say that the challenges that the police department and the city faced in this response were enormous, right? I mean, the, the layering of the, the protests and the unrest on top of the pandemic. I mean, I, I, these, were, these were very, very difficult circumstances and in some ways sort of unprecedented in recent memory. Um, even given that, I, the city and the department could and should have done better. And so I think, you know, um, it, it's it's probably difficult to imagine a situation in which a response to these events would have gone perfectly and kind of to everybody's satisfaction, right? Yeah. Um, but but there's an awful lot of daylight between how this went and and that. I agree. For for people saying, well, you have to find a way to get officers to every place 
in every neighborhood, in every community, all over the city, all at the same time, where there's any kind of looting or destruction or uh, large protests going on, that to me, that wasn't going to happen. We don't have a force of 50,000 officers or 75,000 officers that we would need to be able to do that. So I do agree. My issues with this report is it seems like they failed at every level. This isn't like you need to prepare for like the one once in a hundred years civil disobedience and be up on it at any moment. I don't think that's realistic. We can always strive to do better. But this was they weren't ready for civil disobedience. That was only, you know, only a few degrees worse than what was uh, experienced at the Laquan McDonald um, shooting. So, um, go ahead. I think I think that's. I, Clearly, yes. I think, you know, the, the, um, the sort of failures in senior leadership that we talked about landed in a number of different ways that had real impact on kind of the, the success of this response. And those are the areas, you know, that we kind of lay out in the report by way of specific findings of fact. And I don't know whether you want to sort of go through those, but I will just say, you know, very quickly. Okay. So, so mm-hmm. you know, in addition to this, this broad reaching lack of preparedness and lack of planning, you know, there were gaps in training and in policy and in communication um, and and kind of you know uh, provision for accountability metrics, which which really which which made this a broken response. Right, we're going to go. I wanted one last political thing before we go into the findings. Our mayor, who was brought in on a reform platform, manned the Police Accountability Task Force, um, chaired, was president of the Chicago Police Board, ran. Uh, the Office of Professional Standards, or OPS, back in the day in the early 90s, I believe, sent an email, I find this objectionable as a police accountability person, sends an email to OEMC people during the weekend, I believe. Oh, my, yeah. Um, Where she asked them to make sure they preserve as much as possible from any of the cameras so that we can make sure it disproves claims against the CPD. My problem with that, and I'm fine, like, why why not suggest that they keep all the video possible so that we have a full idea of what happened on these streets and we can deal with whatever comes? That's a mayor's position. Your position isn't just to defend the police. It is to defend the citizens no matter what happens. And whether that's Citizen Joe Cop, you know, or uh, Citizen Joe a citizen who got beat up by a cop on the street, you're there to protect both of them. I was personally kind of offended when I read that because that that's definitely an email I would have expected from Rahm or Daly, not necessarily someone who runs on a reformist, I'm going to reform the police department um, mantra. So I'm not expecting you to comment on that, but I just wanted to say it's in this report. Um, obviously, you noted it because it's in there. Um, and I, I just think it's personally uh, personally objectionable that one of the things um, um, it, one of the things she does on that weekend where all hell is breaking loose is make sure we got video to clear the cops um, instead of maybe keep all the videos so we can learn from it too and make things better. Maybe that would also help. Okay, um, where can people find this report? Let's get that out of the way. It's on, uh, it's on the website for the Office of Inspector General. So that is www.igchicago.org. Wonderful. I suggest you all go there and read it. Let's get into some of the findings. First one, um, breakdown in mass arrest processes. So it, that means the CPD's failure to arrest some offenders 
to release of some arrestees without charge and a risk of officer and uh, arrestee safety. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that finding? Sure. So the, the department has policies in place which lay out protocols for mass arrest situations. And a mass arrest situation is basically one in which because of the scale of an event, ordinary processes and procedures for handling arrests and detentions are sort of overwhelmed by volume. So you sort of can't follow ordinary steps in those processes just because of like the volume or the scale of an event. And so the department has these policies that lays out, that lay out what members are to do under those circumstances. Um, there, in this situation, there had been no sort of systematic or recent training on those protocols. And there was a great deal of confusion about who was responsible for what um, once a mass arrest designation had been made. Confusion also abounded, I would note, about exactly when and by whom those designations were in fact made. So kind of when the tripwire happened for those protocols to be activated. And so the, the result of that kind of confusion and lack of training, lack of equipment, there's, there's specialized equipment kits that accompany those, those um, policies. They weren't distributed. Nobody knew where they were. There were kind of leftover kits from NATO in the basement of some police districts. There was kind of a scramble to find and distribute them. So sort of all of those uh, breakdowns in the mass arrest protocols led to situations in which um, people were taken into custody out, in the, out on the street, taken from the events, and in, in some cases, transported to a detention and processing facility without adequate records for why and by whom they were arrested in the first place. And so that led to a, a couple of bad outcomes among them that, um, you know, some, that, that, that meant that some people were arrested and detained without any substantiation for that arrest and detention, making it improper in the first place. Um, it also led to situations in which people really should have been charged with criminal offenses and couldn't be because there wasn't, there wasn't the information that would have been necessary to do that. Um, those things also contributed to um, delays in processing, kind of in the logistics, I'm sorry, delays in transport, kind of around the logistics of transport, which given the um, sort of the nature of what was happening out in the streets really did risk the safety of both, both officers and arrestees. Okay, well, it's not going to get better for the department as we go through these, um, but that's not good. Um, but this one is particularly um, troubling to me. Um, one of the major problems uh, that I would see in not having proper training and proper communication and oversight um, and chain of command is that force use of force becomes an issue. And the more desperate officers get on the street and the lack of direction and discipline and all of that, use of force becomes a real issue. And I'm going to read the next one. CPD did not fulfill its force reporting obligations, did not provide clear and consistent guidance to officers on reporting obligations. What were the reporting obligations and what was missing from them? So as a general matter, under ordinary circumstances, in ordinary operations, um, when a member of the Chicago Police Department uses force, they are required to report it on what's called a tactical response report. And that is a document on which the officer records 
um, both the actions of the subject, which they identify to have necessitated the use of force, as well as what, um, what force methods were applied. And that, you know, that document, that is how the police department makes a record of the use of force. And it's then reviewed for policy compliance and then also as necessary for, for just the purposes of disciplinary investigation. So that's the kind of ordinary state of affairs. In this situation, this is really fundamentally related to, to the first finding we talked about. There was a huge amount of confusion up to and including the highest ranks of the police department about the circumstances under which a mass arrest designation did and did not change the obligations of members to report uses of force on a tactical response report. So there's sort of a, a, um, a handful of overlapping or, kind of, or, or maybe adjacent directives around mass arrest, use of force reporting, TRRs, and so on. Um, those are in different stages of kind of evolution and updating and so on. And that left us with a policy landscape, which really left room for confusion about whether there were certain uses of force which could simply be recorded on a mass arrest card, on like the single piece of paper that is supposed to accompany a mass arrest, rather than on a complete tactical response report. And so, you know, we, we spoke with members of the department who have responsibilities for the internal review of uses of force, who recalled watching the news in early days, you know, kind of in the early days of the events here in Chicago and thinking, you know, we are not seeing enough TRRs come through the system to match what we are seeing happening on the streets. There's a, there's a disconnect here. Um, and we, we include in the report accountings of sort of various combinations um, really, really high up on the sort of org organizational chart about, um, you know, whether and when TRRs were required in a mass arrest situation. And I think this is a really good example of a situation in which frontline members were not provided adequate guidance and support. If there was confusion kind of among the gold braids, there could have been nothing but confusion on the front line, right? And so, so there's sort of that set of consequences. Then also, um, you know, what that leaves us with is a situation where it's impossible to know what we don't know, but what we can be certain of, I think, is that there will never be a, a kind of complete record of use of force by CPD during these events. Absolutely. And my question is at all, well, the comment on photos like, what's going to happen? Who was responsible for that confusion, right? Because these officers that are on the street, I agree with you 100%. If management is confused about something, forget about it, about on the street guys who, by the way, are on, are on the front lines of that, having to deal with the front lines and then try to decide where in the confusion that is going. Um, that's just not going to happen. So um, I would love to see discipline on the gold braids for who was supposed to um, get that clear or some heads have, should roll about why these officers were left on the street in this manner because they were, to some degree, in my opinion, abandoned. Next, CPD deployed special force options for crowd control and failed to appropriately document those. What are those special uses of forces for crowd control that I see? It seems they're allowed to do, and why weren't they documented? So this is this is a really fine point of policy, and so this is laid out in a great in a great deal of detail in the report. And so this is one of the points of detail for which I really will refer people to the document. But broadly, here what this gets at 
is that there were certain kinds of force tactics, which kind of between policy cracks in terms of, of when and how they were supposed to be reported. Um, this is this is largely related in this context context to the use of batons, um, batons as like a pressure instrument versus a striking uh, tool. Okay. Um, we went through the massive. Okay. Next, the, explain to us what this. To our audience, what this meant. So the CPD did kind of an all hands on deck response, and from what I've read in the media and stuff, does this mean? From what I understand, is this the reason this was a problem? Is that it's putting people on the street to um, take part in the events who would later then be called on possibly to investigate officers that they were on the street with doing those events. So who were the people moved? On all hands on deck, who was it that were moved onto the street and why was why was it done? Yeah, so the um, that sort of structural response, what you call an all hands on deck approach, had a number of really important impacts. Um, so to, to just start at the beginning there, the um, CBD's approach to what it called this emergency mobilization effort, right, to sort of get as many members out into the street as possible in short order, was, um, it was briefly kind of headquartered at McCormick Place, but in, in large part, it rested in the parking lot at Guaranteed Rate Field, um, where they set up sort of this mobilization operation uh, where they canceled the days off of, of CPD members and changed schedules so that people were working 12-hour shifts to increase mm. the number of people on the clock at a time. Um, and they had people, instead of reporting to their regular districts or places of assignment, they had people come directly to Sox Park, to the parking lot, um, where they then had people sort of waiting around in the parking lot, waiting to be assembled into uh, into groups to, to be sent out to various places in the city. We heard one supervisor, one kind of frontline supervisor, say that this was like the dating game. It was basically an exercise in, you know, go out and find a bunch of officers you know and have them sit together under a lamppost. And when we have a CTA bus ready, We'll put you all on the bus and we'll bus you out to a site in some other district, not your district of assignment, where, um, where you know, there are signs of, of looting activity or whatever the case may be. So I say all of that to say there were some, a number of really important um, consequences of, of that approach to deployment. And among them um, are, are some really important accountability considerations. So I'm, I'm on my way to the one that you raised, but one other, okay. one other really important is that because of just the, the bare logistics of that, just the fact that people were assigned to go directly to um, what are guaranteed rate field, you know, wherever the White Sox are losing these days, um, rather than to directly then, then to their districts, meant that they deployed without body-worn cameras because the cameras weren't there. They weren't in the parking lot to, to be picked up by officers. And so, you know, we have a situation where through no fault of the individual officers, we have thousands of CPD members out in the street without body-worn cameras, even though the department's own policies would have required the use of body-worn camera during these events. So that's sort of one impact. Another is exactly the one you raised, that in that kind of all-hands-on-deck effort to get everybody of, you know, everybody possible from the department into this emergency mobilization effort and then deployed out into the streets, um, that 
swept up in that were some CPD members who are ordinarily assigned to the department's kind of internal accountability functions. And that includes the Force Review Division and the Bureau of Internal Affairs. And so the concern that that we heard from members of the department and that we raise in the report is that that risks a situation exactly like the one you described, where you know, you may have either internal affairs investigators or force review division personnel who are responsible for policy review of the use of force, not for disciplinary review, but nonetheless in a sort of accountability function, um, acting as part of the very operation, you know, the oversight of which they're responsible for. And and I think that's a real concern. We also, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the really poignant observations we heard here from, from a a department supervisor was that um, members of some of those kind of accountability function units had real concerns for their safety being out in this response and whether because of the work they do in the department, whether other department members would sort of have their back um, in this response. I think that's, you know, that that's not a situation we should be putting members in um, and, and certainly one which risks undermining accountability processes before they're even out of the gate. Yeah, that's, um, I understand where the police department's coming from. We're like, we need everybody considering what's going on. We need everybody. It's a huge, um, the idea of looting across even 15 neighborhoods and the loop. It's, it's mind boggling thing. You're going to be able to control that. Absolutely. That's certainly true. And, you know, I I think with this, as with all of this, there's there's like risk in Monday morning quarterbacking this. Right. Because Mm -hmm. that's absolutely right. Extraordinary. um, What was called for was an extraordinary response. The reason that, you know, this particular point, I think, really, really sort of stays with me as a troubling one um, is that these are concerns that were raised up the chain of command by department members at the time. So it is not as though this is not sort of a hindsight as 2020 kind of insight. It's not as though this is something which becomes clear to all of us in retrospect. And we all say, you know, what we know now, how this panned out, we should do it differently going forward. This particular issue with the deployment of kind of accountability personnel was raised by CPD personnel up the chain of command at the time. Right. And I, I, I've done now two shows on, on this report and I'm staying away from, well, they should have put more officers here or there. You don't know what was going on. We know about it. No, no, no. But I think this report is really good at just understanding how um, confused and lack of central command was going on and how much we just abandoned the frontline officers. And in the end, screwed some of the protesters because when things get out of your it certainly heightens the possibility of misconduct when there is no central control and everything's all over the place. Okay, you brought it up and we're going to talk about it. So body-worn cameras, you brought up the issue around you're getting deployed and you're in the 16th district, which is up by Jefferson Park. You're getting deployed over by Saxfield to go God knows where in the city, anywhere they need you at this time. You're not stopping to get your body-worn camera. That that may, um, superintendent, if you're listening, that may go into the fact that how about we spend money on equipment for officers and just give them all their own body cameras and not have to have this issue. But, you know, um, we'll probably just buy new Tahoes that don't work in the snow in the alleys like um, Superintendent Weiss did. Okay. Was there an issue with body-worn cameras with officers turning them off? who had them, but then turned them off to hide what was going on. 
I, you know, I, I, we, we didn't find that. We didn't, I, that's not to say that it didn't happen, right? That we had many thousands of people out in the street. And so I, I can't, I don't want to account for every possibility here, but I, I, what is clear to me um, is that, you know, among the costs of the sort of systemic failure here is the inability to identify and discern instances of conduct. Um, impossible to know, right? right? There, there's just sort of a sweeping absence of body-worn camera footage because of the way the response was set up. Now, is there is there more body-worn camera footage missing because some people turn their cameras off? I, I don't know. I, not, no instances of that that we found specifically. There certainly may be. Okay, so my last question for you before I let you go is, this has been a problem in Chicago since I can remember. I'm almost 50, and every protest I hear this is a problem. Covering their badges. Yeah. Right. How widespread was it? Do you have any idea how widespread it was? I know that uh, COPA has at least 78 complaints of it happening. There's photos. I think we have one coming up of the officer who's got tape over his badge. Um, John, we showed in the show last week of another officer uh, from a Chicago reporter story. There we go with no badge on. So do we have an idea how, I mean, that to me is, is a purposeful, wanton misconduct by the individual officer that isn't you you can't look up and say they they didn't do something that to me is you have nowhere to run so do we know how how much that happened do we have any idea no is the short answer um it, it there were certainly as you say dozens of complaints um of that i think you know what what i will say about that is that um that that kind of exposes another really important consequence of the sort of architecture of the response. So because of the way this emergency deployment worked, right, with people getting assembled into groups in the parking lot, loaded onto a CTA bus and sent off somewhere in the city, there were very inadequate deployment records kept to show who was working where and when. And so that puts us in a situation where if there's a complaint of of misconduct by an individual officer, whether the complaint itself is the obscure identifiers or it's something else, we may find ourselves in a situation where we have no body-worn camera footage because people were deployed without their cameras, um, and we have no records of who was working where and when. And so to even identify accused officers is really, really challenging. Um, and you know, so the, the complaints of obscured identifiers are sort of a perfect storm of, of an accountability challenge. Um, you know, we're not gonna, it, it probably isn't feasible to do a 13,000 person photo array with every misconduct. There isn't. No, there's there's no way. Now, hmm, I wonder if the CPD ever uses facial recognition. When some of these pictures, they might be able to determine who those officers were. And my, uh, and this brings up another problem, my feeling would be, first of all, you investigate and strip those officers that did it because it's just wanton misconduct that you're doing on purpose. Maybe fire them. These are my words. But I would say it would be ideal to not only get them, but to go over the supervisors who saw it and did nothing. I know what last week we showed uh, a clip that from Twitter, from Jonathan Bellew's Twitter when they sprayed him and uh, when they pepper sprayed him for no reason. And he went up to another officer and says, hey, what's going on? He goes, it wasn't me. There's nothing I can do. 
And it's like, well, that's why things don't change, right? The super, the sergeant or lieutenant, whoever ordered the spraying and gave the okay, you can see it on video, um, didn't stop him, didn't do anything once he did it. Um, so, yeah, there's there's just no way for you to find most of those officers. And that's why it's done, right? It's effective. It's hard to control. You know, I, I, I will say I, one of the things which I find heartening in the facts that we, we report on here is that I think BIA and COPA worked together, um, you know, really with, with really a great deal of determination to, to try to identify the people they could and to proceed on misconduct complaints. And so, you know, those have many of those have yet to kind of work themselves out. But I will say, I think. I think there were real efforts to, where possible, overcome some of those challenges. Although you're absolutely right, those are those are enormous challenges. Yeah, the whole thing's an enormous challenge. Let's be honest. I mean, um, it was a powder keg, right? The the quarantine, um, the pandemic, the quarantining people of inside, the ma- massive economic instability, housing instability, health instability that was going on in, around the country, especially in the inner cities. Um, had we had a National Security Council that was doing their job, they would have told the president to intervene much quicker because the slightest thing, in my opinion, was going to be was going to be a spark for something like this when that happened. And it wasn't the slightest thing. It was a obvious murder pretty much on videotape. So um, I wasn't surprised. I'm surprised by the scale, but I wasn't surprised there was unrest given everything that happened. And um, to some degree, to some degree here, I feel sorry for some of the frontline officers when you read your report and it's just like, wow, you are just getting pretty much thrown to the dogs. And and God forbid there's any misconduct, you'll probably be the only people held accountable because it hardly ever goes up the way it should be. All right. Um, Deborah, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Great report. And uh, maybe we'll have you on soon again if you drop another one. Looking forward to it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you again to Deborah Witzberg. We really appreciate it. We got um, one more quick segment we're going to do. Um, um, and it kind of folds into um, an upcoming show with Maria Haddon from the 49th Ward. If I read my Slack and I, th- oh no, I read my email right that we have her for the. Um, 22nd i think that's the day we have her starting that we're starting to confirm that um but we're going to talk about an article from the south side weekly which dropped about cops got overtime oh excuse me um for the anjanette young raid this practice is as old as can be in chicago for those who don't remember anjanette young was a um social worker if i'm not mistaken was alone in her apartment. She lived alone. She um, she was in the middle of changing when the police, I think a tactical unit, raided her apartment looking for a felon with a gun. Um, caught her in changing. She was actually naked. She, um, as they searched the apartment, they sort of tried to almost kind of cover her, but didn't really cover her. And she was alone with strange males who she didn't know naked for 20 minutes in her apartment the body cam uh video got released showing this um there's been a lot of uh talk by a lot of loud aldermen about reforms they held a hearing for it we covered it live a while back um 
It was a lot of bluster and no action. Well, um, what what ends up happening is uh, Southside Weekly does some research and hats off to them, and they found out that many, if not all, of the officers involved in that raid were getting overtime for the raid and while they were sitting there and dealing with uh, the paperwork and stuff after the raid. Now, this was a tip they got about a felon with a gun. It was not, as far as I understand the reporting, someone that was immediately going to use it. There wasn't someone like, hey, you know, in a couple hours, he's going to go shoot John. You better go get him, right? This was a tip they got. They did no surveillance. They didn't do any research to find out if the guy was already in the system, which ends up, I think he was in Cook County Jail at the time. They didn't do any of that research, but they did this raid basically after they're off their shifts or just at the end of their regular shift so they can rack up overtime. So while they're busting down the wrong apartment because their informant told them the wrong apartment and violating Anjanette Young's civil rights and and just horrific um, human rights violation, basically, of leaving her more or less naked for 20 minutes while they're waiting for a female officer to get on the scene Um, They couldn't have searched her apartment in two or three minutes and then put her down in a chair and threw some covers on her. I mean, come on, there's a million ways they could have done that to resolve it. Um, But let's not get into that right now. The big thing is they did that either at the end of their shift or just as their shift was ending or just after it ended so they could all rack up overtime while the raid was going on. And then they fill out all the paperwork about what they found. And they would get, you know, time and a half or double time, whatever it is, they would rack up overtime. It's a practice as old as can be in Chicago. It's about, that is pure corruption. There was nothing that I have seen that showed that it would had to be an imminently, it was imminent. The violence was imminent, had to be done immediately, right? They did it. They did it at a time where they could rack up overtime and at the same time, probably get a gun and get the big gold star um, next to their name for the report that they got a gun on the raid. Um, so basically, we paid these cops some a few hours, some, I think, six, seven, eight hours overtime so they could bust down the door and commit a human rights violation to this woman, Anjanette Young. Um, it's just disgusting. The whole thing's disgusting. Um, had they, like, taken that time and done the overtime to actually surveil and to find out who actually lived in the apartment, they might have... Um, never had to deal with um, getting, you know, violating Anjanette's rights. Um, but they didn't do that. They they didn't have time to do the research. They didn't have time to do the surveillance. They didn't have time to run him in the system to see if he was incarcerated or been picked up somewhere. Um, but they did have time to do this and rack up incredible amounts of overtime. It's ridiculous. But this is, a, this is just another way cops are using... Um, and exploiting black bodies and exploiting the criminal justice system to their personal financial interests. Now, does that mean every officer was that way? No, but obviously some were because that it was done at a certain time on purpose. Whoever made that decision should have to explain to COPA or internal affairs and certainly to the superintendent and the public about why that raid was conducted at the time it was. And if it was strictly to rack up overtime, people should have to go, period. That is a ridiculous 
um, exploitation. And you've heard superintendent after superintendent after superintendent talk about how they're going to get rid of it and we're reducing overtime. This is not overtime that we want to pay five, six, seven, eight officers hours and hours of overtime for. This wasn't an incident for that. Um, if this person was like, hey, John Smith is going to go out and commit uh, an assassination or a shooting or a revenge shooting, whatever it may be, um, then I'm fine. Then, you know, imminent circumstances call for the fact that we have to take action. But this isn't it. And then to find out after everything that's happened that um, these cops actually got overtime pay for what they did. In fact, it's probably going to cost the city hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not a million or two, in a civil suit. And on top of that, we paid all these cops for overtime. It's disgusting. Okay. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Once again, Wednesday, we have Alderman 47th Ward, Alderman Mad Martin. On Friday, we have Mick Dumpke from ProPublica talking about his great story about a uh, basically an assassination of a black politician that the CPD had no interest in solving back in the 60s. And um, when we have on Monday, we have the Chicago Crime Lab, a representative of the city talking about the officer support system. And right now, I think on that next Monday, which will be the 22nd of March, we have Alderman, 49th Ward Alderman uh, Maria Haddon on talking about her um, her new ordinance, which I am really intrigued by, called the Anjanette Young Ordinance, to regulate um, search warrants. And something I think the city council should have been doing for decades. They're finally starting the doing. Our mayor obviously has been very cold on it. She threw the coldest of water on it as uh, she introduced new CPD policy that the CPD will never spend any time following or acknowledging. Okay, thank you so much. We'll hope to see you Wednesday at 5.30 Central with Alderman Man Martin.